This episode of Pop Culture Pelican was originally recorded as a philosophy night at St. Stephen's uh, Catholic Church in Portland. Please note, when we recorded this, we were reading the packet for Philosophy Night in sort of a round-robin style. I have re-recorded all of the packet readings, and there might also be some audio quality issues with things that had to be amplified, especially people speaking from midway or back of the room from the mic. Apologies about that. There will also be links to the packet in both the SoundCloud description and the Facebook post for this episode. So please feel free to download that if you'd like to follow along want to thank Father Anderson for having us and having me as a speaker and also for letting us record this. Especially want to thank Patrick for managing that recording and you for listening and for being patient with me because there's a good chance that you have been waiting on this for a long time and I have just now got it done editing. So we hope you really enjoy our special presentation of Philosophy Night about... Uh, news you can use, what is knowledge to an island castaway? Good evening, everyone. Welcome to St. Stephen's. I'm, uh, I'm Father Eric Anderson, and I'm very pleased to invite Dan Lauer to be our speaker tonight. In fact, Dan and I met, I think, my first year as a priest, eight years ago, really? at Philosophy Night. <laughs> He is he's one of the originals. I think there's a couple of originals here. Uh, Nick Elhaj, I think you've been coming since the beginning, too, haven't you? Anyone else been coming since that first year I started at St. Cecilia? Anyone else? No? Okay. Well, uh, thank you for coming. Uh, this should be a very interesting topic tonight. In com- in, was that funny? <laughs> In coming months, so next month, we're going to have our seminarian Matthew Knight, Leading Philosophy Night, giving a talk on, what is it? Hopkins and Heidegger. Ask all, grasp God. Right, so Heidegger and, oh, and Hopkins. Right. So that'll be next month's uh, Philosophy Night. And in the coming months, we'll have uh, Father Todd Molinari coming back again to talk about situation ethics. We'll have Father John Arcidiacono from St. Joseph's in Salem coming to talk about something, and uh, Ryan Lovett and Sean Natola will also be giving presentations in the coming months, so please stay tuned for that. Uh, Well, let's start with a prayer. Please stand, we'll face the cross. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be unto me according to thy word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection 
Through the same Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, then, let us welcome Mr. Daniel Lauer. Y'all know that, that this is going to suck now, right? Like, we both love so much. Um, somebody, somebody wrote something on my... Somebody wrote Slay Dragons on my... Uh, on my paper here. Awesome. Yeah, well, I, it's, it's signed, so I don't have to. It's definitely CJ. Um, so uh, tonight we're going to ask uh, six questions about an essay by a guy named Walker Percy. And um, I'm going to go ahead and ask Andrew Gill, if you would, and if one other person would please start a timer, because we have a special bet tonight. I'm awesome if I can get through this whole packet uh, before the extended Q&A in 90 minutes. If I can't, I owe Father Anderson a beer. Um, that is the bet. Now, uh, to that end, please, if you have an extended, you know, a, com- a question that's more of a comment, or maybe a um, kind of a, a more extended question that'll take a while to ask, please hold that until the actual extended Q&A, which is not part of that 90-minute allotment. Um, <laughs> so, going to learn a little bit about some things, and I'm going to kind of go around and ask people to read. I might have to point at people. I know that pointing is rude, um, but we're short on time. Um, so, uh, who am I? For the two of you who don't know me in this crowd, I am uh, Dan Lauer. I am a Catholic convert as of 2010. I swam the Tiber. Uh, my parents back there are uh, Wesleyan Methodists, and they gave me a foundation of Jesus. Um, I like to joke that when I was three, I embraced Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, and when I became Catholic, I embraced him as my corporate Lord and Savior. Um, <laughs> And uh, I do a, I do a, a podcast with uh, Patrick Tomasi over there, and we're recording this as an episode for tonight. So uh, if, you, if you don't want um, any of your credit card numbers or embarrassing celebrity crushes on the record, please don't mention them now. Um, so what are we going to do tonight? Uh, we're going to talk about an essay. And it's... Uh, we'll- I know why Father keeps the books close to the podium. Um, We're talking about an essay from this book, The Message in the Bottle. The essay is appropriately entitled The Message in the Bottle. And um, I'm going to go ahead and just have people go around. The kind of the the shtick here is that we go around, we we read little things. And then a little bit later on, some of you are going to win down Lauer's money. We're going to learn about uh, island castaways and what is news you can use as opposed to just mere knowledge. Walker Percy was a Southern writer and a Catholic convert. He began as an agnostic working in medicine. Tuberculosis cut his medical career short. While in treatment, he began reading Thomas Aquinas and Soren Kierkegaard, which was one factor leading to his conversion to Catholicism. Now, uh, it's important to note uh, the time that Percy got TB, the, the main treatment, is to cover you in blankets, put you outside and hope for the best. Like, that's a, a bulk of your treatment is you're just out there, you're miserable, you got nothing like fun to do except maybe read. So he did and read himself right into the faith. Percy was generally Thomist and shared many existentialist concerns. The central question of the essay we're discussing, The Message in the Bottle, is the tension between Aquinas and Kierkegaard. Aquinas says the act of faith consists essentially in knowledge, and there we find its formal or specific perfection. Kierkegaard says faith is not a form of knowledge, for all knowledge is either knowledge of the eternal excluding the temporal and the historical as indifferent, or it is pure historical knowledge. 
no knowledge can have for its object the absurdity that the eternal is the historical. So it seems like they're kind of saying two different things. Um, for Aquinas, faith including faith in the incarnation, uh, which is the notion that something eternal becomes something sort of temporal in a sense, um, while not being reduced to that temporal thing, uh, is sort of a conflict with what Kierkegaard is saying, it's saying that this category of knowledge, these are mutually exclusive. You can't connect them. There's no knowledge that connects these two things. So section two, uh, why do all these tables have island names? Percy considers a castaway on an island. He has lost his memory in the shipwreck and has no recollection of where he came from or who he is. I'd like to volunteer Nicole Schofield to play our castaway tonight. She's graciously agreed to this. So if you would please uh, cast yourself off of this island and on whatever island you choose. Nicole, I swear I didn't plan this. <laughs> cool. The castaway makes the best of things by finding a spouse, getting a career, and contributing to society. He takes walks on the beach each morning and finds bottles washed up on shore. Each bottle contains a single piece of paper with a single sentence written on it. Uh, at this point in time, I'm going to pause this for one moment. And I'm going to ask if I could get my lovely assistant here to pass out messages. Just pass out one to each table, and that should be good. And I'm going to ask when you get that, uh, please, yeah just, yeah, just pass the packet. And if you take that packet, pass it to people at your table, distribute the messages, open them, and just maybe discuss them for about three to five minutes. These are messages that, as a castaway, you'd be receiving on your beach walk. Hello. Hello. Okay. So by now you've all opened your messages. Uh, did any of you get the message that said someone won a dollar but it wasn't you? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what that was. It was the somebody won a dollar. Uh, mine says the dream symbol house and balcony represents a woman, uh, which is uh, from like psychological analysis. That's where that's the, that's the correct, that's part of knowledge that that comes from. Does anybody anybody who who won the won a dollar? Woo <laughs> well, Glenn makes more than me, but he, he takes the bus too, so that's evens out. If you feel weird about taking my money, just use it for a votive candle or something. You know, I don't. Um. So. In our modern philosophical categories, the sentences are synthetic, involving empirical facts that we can observe, or analytic, involving intuitive truths, logic, mathematics, etc. But these modern categories might not be super useful to the castaway. What if the islander instead said that some of the sentences were knowledge and others were news? What does Percy mean by knowledge and news? A knowledge sentence is a statement that anyone on any island could accept or reject given the proper tools. It is philosophy or liberal arts broadly, including art, philosophy, biology, mathematics, psychology, history, etc., and both analytic or synthetic sentences. So uh, one way that Percy uses to describe this in the essay is that it is knowledge that anybody cast away on any island 
could arrive at at any time if they have the right tools. So if you have the right tools, you can get there. So mathematics is a piece of knowledge because you can get there with the right tools if you have like, you know, the slide rule or whatever you use when you know you're not using a calculator. Um, you can get there even if you're on like an island elsewhere. Examples. Lead melts at 330 degrees. Chicago is on the Hudson River or Chicago is not on the Hudson River. 2 plus 2 equals 4. The dream symbol, house and balcony, usually represents a woman. Men should not kill each other. News is a synthetic sentence expressing a contingent and non-recurring event or state of affairs which is peculiarly relevant to the concrete predicament of the hearer of the news. It is a knowledge which cannot possibly be arrived at by any effort. So news is a thing you can't get out on any island from anywhere because it happens kind of to you and it's relevant to you as a person, like your subjective predicament it's relevant to. Relevant to. Examples. The British are coming. The market for eggs in Bora Bora is very good. Jane will arrive tomorrow. In 1943, the Russians murdered 10,000 Polish officers in the Cadian Forest. This distinction between knowledge and news gives us two possible ways of looking at the sentences we're trying to examine, the postures of philosopher and castaway. The philosopher evaluates the significance of knowledge by how universal it is. More universal pieces of knowledge are more significant. The philosophical posture evaluates whether to accept knowledge by using the available tools. The response to a piece of knowledge is to confirm it, or reject it. The castaway receives sentences as news, news strictly relevant to the predicament in which the hearer of the news finds himself. The castaway evaluates news by asking, in short, should I act on this? The response to a piece of news is to heed it, or ignore it. Okay, we're going to stop just one moment there. So I'm going to provide you with a couple examples. Now, if I am talking to Father Anderson, and I say, you know, Father, a book is a huge, um, you know, it's like a collection of pages that you bind together, and you put them together sometimes with a harder cover on the outside, and, and sometimes there's writing on them. And Father's like, of course, I, I, I know that. I can look it up in a book. It's obvious that that's what a book is. I mean, and we don't need to have, like, a two-hour discussion of what a book is. I've, we've had that kind of discussion before at Philosophy Nights. Uh, <laughs> those of you who remember are still scarred. Um, on the other hand, if I say, Father Anderson, did you know they're having a book sale at Powell's? Then that's a question. Then what would you say to that? Uh, <laughs> don't they sell books every day at Powell's? <laughs> so... Father Anderson's response would be to make a pun. Uh, so when Roman Apple would be like, I'm there. Like, you know, that's going to be their response. Similarly, if I'm hanging out with my friend Andrew Gill over there, and we're at some, like, Catholic social or whatever, and Gill says, Dan, did you know the woman is a female human? I'd be like, yes. What? Why are you telling me this? On the other hand, if Gill says, you know, Gill, there's a dark-haired woman over there who likes video games and Catholic literature, I'd be like, i got to meet this person right now. <laughs> Um, okay. Now I'm turning red, okay, great. Anyway. The castaway must act by a canon of acceptance which is usable prior to verification. 
So I might not know if Palace is a sale until I get there. I might not know if she really likes video games and Catholic literature until I get there. The hair I can probably guess. There are three canons of acceptance. Relevance, credentials, and possibility. Relevance. The news must be relevant for my predicament. Is it news I can use? Credentials. The news bearer must come in sobriety, good faith, without self-interest, have knowledge of my circumstances, and must not be a fool or knave. Sometimes good faith is clear to a stranger, but it's ruined by familiarity. It was enough for Jesus to utter the one word, come, to a stranger. Yet when he uttered the same word in Nazareth, no one came. It's one of the moments of Percy's essay that really stuck with me, was when he uttered the same, same word in Nazareth, nobody, nothing. Possibility. The news must be possible and ideally plausible. As an example, imagine that Bora Bora has been under tyrannical rule for centuries. Bora Bora, choose your tyrant. If a sober news bearer came to Bora Bora to say that a party from Rhode Island would come soon to free them, but the news seemed unfitting, one shouldn't heed it. If, however, there had been promises of deliverance for a hundred years from a neighboring island, and signs had been agreed upon by which one could recognize the deliverer, and a news bearer from this very island arrived, and announced a piece of news in supreme relevance to the predicament of the islanders, and announced it in perfect sobriety and with every outward sign of good faith, then the islander must himself be a fool or a knave if he did not heed the news. We getting this? So we're... If there's something, if there's something like a quick clarifier, please feel free to ask. I don't want to put a kibosh on all questions necessarily. I was a little tyrannical earlier. She's the tyrant Right, that's true. Lisa is the tyrant now. Um, okay, so, but in, in all seriousness, are there any questions at this point? Because we just threw a lot of stuff. Nathan? So all this is ultimately trying to, to reconcile, in a thesis, to reconcile Kierkegaard with Thomas Aquinas? I think that's Percy's starting point. I don't actually think that's what he's trying to do. Sean? I don't know the, the exact timeline of when this was written, but this sounds a lot like C.S. Lewis's discourse from being converted to Christianity when he basically said, to summarize, either Christ was who he said he was, or he was the greatest fool who ever arrived on the scene. And this is taking the perspective of if someone comes with this message and you're waiting for it, you're the fool if you don't at least investigate that message. I think you're tracking pretty well. That's actually a connection. The Lewis connection is not one that I thought about, which is uh, kind of funny because he it, they tend to be admired in, in some similar circles, uh, including some similar Catholic circles, for sure. Um, was there anybody, any other questions, clarifiers? What are you trying to do, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get to this in 90 minutes, so I don't know if Father Anderson a beer and I can just buy, buy him one freely. Um, if it helps you at all, you're only 21 minutes in. Wow, this is going fast. <laughs> well, we'll see how fast it goes when we get to the when we get to the the. Wow. Okay. Wow. Um, <laughs> 21 minutes. Excellent. Because we're all helping you out. Yeah. So, 
Uh, the next question on our bit list of the big six is, what is knowledge to an island castaway? It's good for a castaway to know how to survive and thrive on the island. To do so, he or she pays attention to island news, which is relevant to the everyday life of any islander on any island at any time. The castaway knows that life on the island is something of a charade. He is aware, however faintly, of his own predicament, that he is a castaway. So yeah, this is pretty straightforward. You pay attention to island news, you survive, you live, but you have this knowledge of being a castaway. You know you just washed up one day, you're not sure how you got there. Nathan, question. Uh, I think it was essentially the question, so this, the, the whole discourse here is <clears throat> what, what would happen, how one would acquire knowledge if they were a castaway and had no previous knowledge, how they would um, gain knowledge as they went? Well, kind of. Um, so in this case, we're talking about island news, which is news that's relevant if you're... Um, if you're on the island, like to just get survive on that island. Um, but even though you're a castaway, you're sorry. The question here is uh, like whether the point, like whether the question is like how to get knowledge when you're a castaway. And that is one definite question. But the other uh, question kind of within that is you're still aware that you're a castaway. So even if you have all the knowledge and all the news that you need to survive, you're still going to be aware. Of, you're still going to be aware of that predicament as a castaway. Uh, would you all believe that once in high school, when I was doing a prayer service, a friend of mine told me, if you think you're going too slow, go slower. Uh, that's a thing. Okay. Um, so, Dan, the idea behind the, the premise of the castaway is to act as a, a, a kind of similar, an analogy for a human condition of being here on Earth but not knowing anything outside of it or, or coming from, from a state of ignorance kind of thing? I think that's kind of what's going on. I think Percy would sort of deny that initially, maybe, but only sort of facetiously, because it's clear that that's what he's doing. While we take a little pause here, we would like to ask you if you enjoy listening to Pop Culture Pelican to go on to your iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and write a little review, give it a give it a ranking. Those will really help us get the podcast to uh, people that might be interested in it. And then, you know, obviously, uh, you can like us on social media as well. What does it mean that life on the island is something of a charade? So it's something of a charade because um, if you don't know what island you actually came from, you won't necessarily know who you are. And authenticity and kind of that real authentic life uh, that is such a you know, kind of existentialist concern that really informs Percy becomes problematic, basically. Does that... Can I offer something to that? Sure. Um, it strikes me that if we talk about the castaway, I can't help but think about the movie, The Castaway. <laughs> with, um, Tom Hanks and Wilson and everything. And I think, to me, the, the, the idea that he has a sense that his life on the island is a charade or it's not quite real because he knows he belongs somewhere else. He knows he's from somewhere else and he has to live the rest of his life Somehow he has to get somewhere else. So, so it's, it's kind of a...
liminal thing that he's trying to figure out. Mm. Yeah. But is that somewhere else, elsewhere, or is it where they are? I think of Madagascar with the, you know, they, some of them just want to get away, they want to leave, whatever, whatever it takes. The others, they make, they make their home there. And that becomes where they belong. Yeah. And I think it also depends on, to use the image of the castaway, and stop me from getting off topic, but it depends on the age of which, the age you are at the time you become a castaway. So in the, in the physical realm of, you know, the metaphor here of be, being castaway, if you're a 45-year-old woman and you are a castaway, you have a vid, very vivid life of your life on your previous island or your previous landmass. Mm-hmm. If you are an infant when you become a castaway, you have no memory of your previous life, and your life on that castaway island does not feel like a castaway. Yeah. So I think you could translate that into the spiritual realm, um, which I think might be what the, the author is trying to do here. And, and, and uh, we all are at various stages of, if I can, maybe spiritual development as to our uh, level of recognition of our own castaway-ness. So uh, Joseph and Glenn are bringing up a point about um, that, you know, when you're younger, if you're castaway when you're younger, it's not as much of an awareness. You might be more likely to kind of brush it off. Um, of course, unless the people on the island are lying to you that you would still know. Um, but what Joseph's pointing out is that it kind of brings in a notion of gradation, that you might have different degrees of knowledge of this castawayness. Um, and Kathleen brought up the excellent and uh, obvious connection of the uh, Tom Hanks movie, Castaway, which I actually neglected to note anywhere in this entire packet. Um, uh, so we'll continue. Uh, if there's anything else to John, did you have something? Well, I... I- your, your comment, your last comment was great. I was going to say that the, the use of the term castaway is more of a literary device that we see when we talk about existentialist writers of the modern period. They use a lot of novels as opposed to consequences which are very rational in these discourses. Mm-hmm. So I was just going to point out that when we're thinking about castaway, it's a really nice metaphor for what is a larger, we can, we can, you can live in one of the most populated cities in the United States and yet still be on an island, and that's the metaphor mm-hmm. that I think we're going for here. So just put yourself in that frame of mind that mm-hmm. yeah. we're talking about metaphorical islands. So yeah, you can, you can kind of, yeah, you can, you can live, you can live in a, a super populated area, but you're still sort of, yeah, you still have that, that aloneness, that awareness of your, of your condition. Um, and in this example, it is important to note that Castaway does have a society to live and thrive in. They have a family, they have friends, they have a job. Um, let's see, so... The Castaway searches for news from across the seas and hopes for such a message. Percy contends that the Christian gospel is news, not philosophical knowledge. It's not the sort of thing one could arrive at by effort. It must be brought to one's islands. It is indifferent to esoteric philosophical truths, such as might be arrived at by Vedantists, Buddhists, idealists, existentialists, or by any islanders anywhere or at any time. For Kierkegaard, faith is the organ of the historical, but the Christian faith is an embrace of the absolute paradox as such, a setting aside of reason. Kierkegaard, unlike St. Thomas, denies a cognitive content to faith. To Kierkegaard, the absolute paradox was that one's eternal happiness should depend on a piece of news from across the seas. We must ask whether Kierkegaard's antimony of faith versus reason is any more appropriate to the situation of the castaway than the logician's classification of synthetic and analytic. So, what what he's saying here is, and this is important, does Kierkegaard's 
framing of this issue that it's got to do uh it's got to do with a, a faith that just no, nothing basically nothing to do with the reason it's just an absurdity that you that you can gra- that you grasp um is that actually relevant to someone in the position of a castaway is that actually relevant um and is it any more relevant than saying well this this is a this is a logical thing and this is a scientific observable thing and um and that's I, it's important to point that out i'm sorry sean Sure. What would you do then with someone like Josephine Bakita, who had no, the gospel never, didn't reach her in her life, but yet she had this interior disposition to knowing there was something beyond, and like believing that her guardian angel was what she saw in the tree that protected her from, you know, the men that were out together and stuff like that. So um, what Sarah's raising a point about is people who don't have someone, like a person to explicitly bring the gospel to them, or I, I should say, I'm sorry, a human to bring the gospel to them. And I think that that actually is covered and is sort of addressed in that um, in that 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 angel to her was bringing that good news of deliverance. But it was oh yeah, definitely, okay. absolutely. Even though you, that then requires like the supposition of faith to begin with. Well, you could would not have been exposed to. Yes, but the faith itself could still be a grace given, and okay. I would say I would say that it would still definitely be an outside source, perhaps even more so than if if a person came, even more explicitly than if a person came. I think it seems to me anyway that the distinction is between knowledge you could reason yourself to and God you couldn't reason yourself to. So a reality you couldn't reason yourself to. Right? So there's no amount of mental gymnastics that can generate an angel that tells you about the gospel. All right. So Patrick's raising the point, like the knowledge news distinction, it's not knowledge because you, she couldn't have reasoned her way to that angel, basically. She might reason about it once it was there, but she couldn't reason to it. Um, okay. I believe. 51. Yes, is that correct? The knowledge versus news distinction corresponds to the two knowledges of St. Thomas. In scientific knowledge, assent is achieved by reason. In knowledge of faith, scientific knowledge and assent are undertaken simultaneously. The stumbling block to the scientist, philosopher, artist on the island is that salvation comes by hearing, and not through philosophical knowledge. Okay. Um, I'm going to find something, because I copied something down, actually, an extended version of the quotation from Aquinas um, that he gives in the earlier part of the thing. I went and I read a little bit and read kind of what Tom, what Thomas is objecting to, and... Um, when Thomas uh, says what he says about um, the act of faith consists essentially in knowledge, and there we find its formal or specific perfection, is um, a defense against a sort of attack on the definition from Hebrews that faith is the kind of the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Um, and what they're claiming is that, I'm trying to think if I can get this right. <laughs> That basically, that that's not a consistent definition because you can't assign kind of two powers to the same thing and that you're assigning knowing and passions to the same, like knowing and, and passions to like the same, the same uh, sort of, uh, the, same, the same concept, basically. And that you can't do that, basically, because that's not, it's not consistent. It has to be one thing and then it has to go out as the other and that doesn't work. Um, you mind if I... Um, okay, so he says, 
the act of faith consists essentially in knowledge, and there we find its formal or specific perfection. This is clear from its object. Faith is perfected in the in the affections because it is by reason of charity that it can merit its end. The beginning of faith, too, is in the affections, insofar as the will determines the intellect to assent to matters of faith. But that act of will is an act neither of charity nor of hope, but of the appetite seeking a promised good. From this it is clear that faith is not in two powers as, it, as in its subjects. So Aquinas is saying, no, this is consistent. Uh, faith is not in two powers because the act of will is not... It's not an act of charity over hope. It's still kind of an act of, of knowing. But you seek the promised good. Just like if someone comes to me and says, Dan, there's a book sale at Powell's. I will then drive to Powell's and seek that promised good. Now, I might be disappointed, but if my friend is trustworthy and they know that I like books and they know what Powell's is and when they have sales, probably I'm not going to be disappointed. I have one over here and then... <laughs> you know, just, it, it, it seemed to me, I'm confused, but it seemed to me that with Aquinas there's an idea of with the, with the two types of knowledge and reason and faith, it seemed to me that the reason kind of gets, is meant to get in which direction one is to go. But since the finite mind cannot comprehend the infinite, then that, that quest for God to some extent is then completed the second half through faith. So the two... Um, faith and reason and the two have an interrelationship between them, while it seems in Kierkegaard that he just insists you just take a, what he calls a leap of faith, and he would say spurn reason altogether. That, yeah, that's basically, you kind of have to spurn reason. Um, uh, so, uh, what Nathan's bringing up is that uh, for Aquinas, faith and reason are harmonious, and for Kierkegaard, uh, to a certain degree, they're not. You have to sort of embrace the absurdity and kind of throw away your reason for that second. Um, Kierkegaard's chief example being Abraham when he decides to sacrifice his son Isaac. Well, I was just going to say the obvious is that Kierkegaard, for the historical note, he was Lutheran, correct? I believe that's correct, yes. So there is that natural dichotomy just between Luther, this it's a presumption uh, that there's the separation of faith and reason. Yeah. And I'm sorry, we had Joseph and Matthew? Then you guys yeah, have? I, just your analogy of the book sale at Powell's, I'd say that's more on the line, along the lines of reason. You have reason to believe, seeing as Powell's has had books on sale before, mm-hmm. that surely they will have books on sale again. And if it's told to you, if it's proclaimed to you by your someone who's trusted that it's on sale, that that is, you have reason to believe. I think the, the beautiful thing about faith, and to piggyback on what this gentleman said here, but what Aquinas uh, talks about in, in faith and reason working together, especially in Aquinas' time and, and in, in the time of some of our early uh, theologians, uh, because of our lack of what we would now call scientific knowledge or empirical knowledge of how the world works, uh, faith and what we would now call reason played much more of a... a people had much more reason to believe in nowadays called the supernatural, or, or what we would say is faith-based. I think um, because there was no other explanation for it. Um, so something like um, any any biblical event, could it, it would be much easier to accept that 
on almost a reason standpoint, because what other reason could there be? The beautiful part about that is as we've moved forward throughout human development, I think, uh, the more that science can uh, e explain what what is happening, the more we still don't know, and the more that there still is this interplay between reason of, well, yes, I know Powell's has book sales, and they will have another book sale tomorrow, I'm sure of it. Yeah. And you know what? But I hear tomorrow. I, I've been told that tomorrow they will be giving everything away for free. They've never done that before. Yeah. I have, I have faith that you know there's an interplay of, of the two, and that still plays out today. Oh yeah, it's not a perfect analogy by far. Um, so the book sale analogy definitely not uh, not completely adequate to the task. Um, if it hasn't occurred yet, definitely that's the case. Um, Wouldn't it be fair to say that I? I, I in my own experience, the human mind doesn't necessarily always work that way. It doesn't necessarily approach it from a skepticism, depending on the strength of the relationship. I'm not going to go through the whole process of, like, well, have they done that before, or is this happening, or that happening. Depending on the person that it is, I'm going to accept it, because that, that trumps any sort of logical reasoning that I will need to do, because I have reached a certain place where I, I can have that faith. But at the same time, it can be further aided in the eventuality by reason coming alongside it. But right. at least at the start, I begin based on the supposition of faith of the person that I'm, I'm listening to. Within the context of what you, these, these scenarios happen yeah. before you can even think about them. Huh? Yeah. So even if, I, I forget your name, Father, Father, Father Eric. Yeah. Father Eric. Even if Father Eric tomorrow was to say, I promise you the sun will not come up tomorrow. No matter how much faith we, we put in Father Eric, in our society, in our religion, in our faith, there are other reasons, uh, or areas of reason within our brain that are happening like this based on our experience of growing up and living in this world that would give us reason to pause and go, mm -hmm. and so I'm, I'm not saying that everybody yeah. views the world in that skeptic way, it's just, yeah. It's based on, on experience in growing up in this physical realm that, um, that, that, you, that, you, that you have these um, jumps to reason uh, that I think the, the further back we go in human history, we're um, covered more by faith, I guess. Father? At the same time, we have, uh, at the same time we have situations like... Uh, the lives of St. Padre Pio and people like that, uh, where there are a lot of stories about all sorts of marvelous and fantastic and miraculous things that happen in our present day. And people are likely to believe those things because sure. they're happening now. Sure. Whereas, uh, and it's, you know, we don't even think of science when we think of that. Uh, whereas um, people may be skeptical about the early stories that spoke of dragons and and miracles and by location and such in, in the Bible or in the early, you know, in the early uh, stories of the saints. But we have similar stories of things happening today. So I don't think, I really don't think, you know, the human mind, uh, you know, the, the human mind, we don't accept things that are not ha really happening uh, anymore back then than we do today. I, sure. I disagree that the people would have an easier time believing back then than now. I, I think there were a lot of skeptics then as there are. 
I, so, I would totally agree with that. I would, I would totally agree with that. I would like to suggest, though, that there is some truth to what Joseph is saying in that, um, in that uh, for unthinking people, the impetus to believe may be a little lower. People who don't think about it super critically, maybe just critically enough. I think it actually might be Pascal who said that like a little bit of philosophy inclines you away from religion, but a lot of philosophy will push you right into its arms. Um, uh, and actually, a quick example. I didn't actually think I was going to use this book. This is Marilyn Robinson, The Givenness of Things. If you don't have a tolerance for liberal Calvinism, that is the thing. Don't read this. But um, that, is, that, is her, uh, that is her shtick, is, is the, more, the more complex our world gets, the less we know about it. And that that for her is a pointer that things are not so easily reduced. Um, and also noting, of course, when we talk about news, we're not necessarily talking about the existence of God, because that is a thing that, at least in, in Percy's framework, because it's in the Thomistic framework, that we could reason our way to that. We couldn't reason our way to the resurrection, however, because that's a whole other ballgame. Nathan? I, I, I guess I'm trying to see how... St. Aquinas and how Kierkegaardian existential philosophy could possibly be reconciled. And that there, it seems to me they're so radically different in that I would think that Thomas Aquinas would find Kierkegaard's idea of shun reason and take a leap of faith to be detestable. I just don't. Well, I, I, I think that Aquinas might find it detestable, but Percy is not Aquinas. Um, and, and the thing is that... Um, they're not, he's not attempting a full reconciliation here. He's, he's actually said basically that Kierkegaard is wrong, or at least not as relevant, um, in terms of what it means to us, ultimately. Um, and so he's not necessarily trying to reconcile and say they're both right. Um, and Kierkegaard still has a point. Like it, it's a little absurd when we think about it, and we've been saying this since, since, since the church was formed, that don't let your senses deceive you, this is, this is not only bread. And we wouldn't have been saying that if it didn't look a little bit like your senses were deceiving you about the Eucharist. Um, now, that is not to say that it's unreasonable to believe that, so much as to say that there is a certain absurdity to it. And for Kierkegaard, in the philosophical context that he inhabited, the absurdity was much more apparent than the reasonability of it. Um, because he sort of buys into a lot of the postmodern and... I'm sorry, I'm saying postmodern because I kind of... I don't really think of existentialism as a modernism, but that's a topic for a whole different night, and I would need to study much more about it before I make that assertion too seriously. Um, anyway, um, does anybody else want a just about five minutes of a water break or something like that? Because I'm going to take a five-minute water break, and you all can do the same. <laughs> <laughs> Hello! I just decided to go the super obnoxious route. Hope that's okay. I don't have 20 minutes. I got like 30. Uh, we have about 30 minutes left. And... Uh, that is counting the break, mind you. Everybody has lots of questions. I'm sure they will. Yeah.
Well, we'll have to put the kibosh back on the uh, questions that are really comments. Uh, we'll see. Are we? I, there's, this mic doesn't actually magnify anything, so I don't know why I'm doing this. But are we ready? Are we? Okay. <laughs> Gotta remember where we actually left off. Okay. Does this remind us of anything? The analytic synthetic way of classifying information parallels the rationalism and empiricism that Father Tim Furlow discussed in his talk on transhumanism. Analytic sentences correspond to rationalism, which justifies knowledge with our minds. Synthetic sentences correspond to empiricism, which justifies knowledge with our eyes. The givenness of news reminds us of Joseph Pieper's Leisure the Basis of Culture, in which contemplation consists in part of reality received, explicitly not worked for. Now that might be blurring the lines a little on that one, because it, it, the knowledge that, Pe that Pieper's talking about also includes uh, what the ancients did for philosophy. But he is, it does, it just, the, the givenness of the thing is what the, is what is the reminder. The distinction between knowledge and news, of course, reminds us of the distinction often made on philosophy night between philosophy and theology. Theology concerns truths only knowable by revelation. Philosophy is truth knowable by natural reason alone. In this sense, philosophy of the gospel is impossible, but by engaging revelation philosophically, we approach the distinction another way. So that's that's what I think Percy is, is trying to do a little bit in this essay. He's trying to get at the distinction between philosophy and theology and sort of bring us back from this, like, I can't know anything, it's all just absurd, back into that sort of more pre-modern view. But like a lot of people in the 20th century, his concern is, how do I reach this man uh, whose concerns are, you know, a seemingly meaningless world? Well, I, I maybe steal some methodology from the people who... Uh, who do their philosophy about seemingly meaningless world. That is the existentialist absurdists, those guys. Um, and Joseph. Oh. Um, so I wrote this in my handy cheat sheet. Um, existentialism is a philosophical movement defined by starting points of human existence and experience and concerns about meaning in a seemingly absurd world rather than by a single coherent philosophy. So while they tend towards saying that uh, basically things exist and they don't necessarily have an essential nature before that time, that um, that they um, that there's not like a, a single like you can't like slap a thing and say this is the existentialist like philosophy period, uh, and like you can say it to a certain degree if you're talking about believers in God or unbelievers, so Kierkegaard versus uh, Sartre, but you wouldn't be able to say, well, every existentialist believes like these like 20 things. Um, the other thing, which uh, my friend Maddie was, was uh, happy to point out to me, is that you can always tell an existentialist because they will always tell you they are not an existentialist. Um, and that's a cheat sheet version, so it may not be 100% accurate. There's probably at least one person who knows more than me who can tell me why I'm wrong. Go ahead. With, with the distinction, though, you said between you know, Kierkegaard, you said who, who is a believer, and, and, and Sartre, who's not, but with, with at least Kierkegaard's existentialism, I mean, he doesn't put a lot of emphasis on any sort of, of dogma. He says the leap of faith, he said a person worshipping an idol is it's just as valid if he's in good faith as if someone who is not worshipped, it was a Christian or a Catholic, but not in good faith. So it seems that for Kierkegaard, there really isn't an emphasis on truth. Well, Aquinas would say, in keeping with traditional 
Platonic and Aristotelian philosophy, classical philosophy, that there is an absolute truth of some kind. For the reason why, first, it's, it seems to me, from what I see at this point, that, that Kierkegaard and Aquinas couldn't be more estranged, and why, and why that neither one of those would would work with with what that's what he's trying to say, because Kierkegaard doesn't really have any dogmatic belief. I don't know if that's true necessarily. I, I don't know if Kierkegaard has no dogmatic belief. I think maybe there's a disagreement about what dogma is and how you get to it. Um, not necessarily a difference in terms of what the belief, what what dogmatic belief is. Um, let's see. Anything else? Chris? What's drawing this guy to these two seemingly very divergent well, because uh, Percy had that philosophy of everything I can know, I can know by science. He wanted to be a scientist. He wanted to fix things. Uh, his books, his novels, his essays, they're all full of people who think they can solve the world's problems with science. And it always goes horribly wrong. Um, uh, the main character of the book Lost in the Cosmos is you trying to solve all your problems and trying to figure out who you are and trying to understand why, even though you don't, even though you know you can learn anything about any, any space object you can think of, basically, in about 20 minutes, um, you still don't know who you are. And I think what's drawing Percy to these guys is that, um, is that they shocked him out of his paradigm. And what I would suspect, uh, not a biographer of Percy's, but what I would suspect is that he would be shocked out of that sort of modern man, and this is what I would necessarily think maybe as being more modernist, uh, I can solve the world's problems with science kind of technology, mankind is fundamentally good, tech, you know, sort of terminology, uh, and into a sort of, okay, no, and, oh, I'm going to die, what do I do about that? And No, but like, really, what do I do about that? And so I would say that Kierkegaard doesn't necessarily provide his final answer, but provides sort of his, his starting point, his point for kind of just kind of poking at modern man to find out what's going wrong and trying to make that modern man realize that something is missing. Uh, Aquinas, I think, provides sort of the foundation um, for maybe building a more coherent philosophy afterwards. And a lot of the people that, that Percy would read were people who were attempting... Uh, a more complete reconciliation, I think, between the methodologies, and always with this grounding fundamentally in the the truth, and that there is a truth that we have to hold on to, but that we also have to kind of, I think, know how to navigate when it seems like there is no truth. Like, what do we do in that circumstance? How do we get? How do we reach people who are in that circumstance? So, I think that may be part of where his past needs to come from. Is Kierkegaard it, sees the disease all around him. And Aquinas has sort of a cure, but maybe nobody's ready to receive it yet. So they got to hear about the disease first, and I'll, you'll hear that again later a little bit. Complete relativism, what's true for you is true for you, for Kierkegaard. I'm like Aquinas would say, no, there is an absolute truth, even if we can't entirely perceive it. Well, they're not entirely reconcilable. Definitely not. 
and I think Percy has clearly sided with with Aquinas in this in this debate. Um, Kierkegaard also was kind of a mysterious figure and sometimes wrote things that were designed to sort of hide exactly where he stood. Uh, he would often try out different philosophical ideas. I want to say he even wrote it under pseudonyms. So he's not necessarily a, a cut and dried like good Lutheran boy, as it were. Well, I was going to say I don't think that we. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Kierkegaard was not properly speaking a relativist either. So it's not a what's true for you is true for me. I think it's a matter of systematic philosophies that grew up out of the rational period that tried to figure, tried to re- actually tried to reduce everything to pure reason, not as a way of finding out the truth that we know by faith, but actually to free reason so that they would no longer need faith. Yeah. And I think this is a reaction. I think Kierkegaard is reacting to his time period. Mm-hmm. He's actually he's finding the mystery in, in, in these abstract problems. Stephanie. Um, so, just going back to the like, good and bad faith thing, like, would you prefer someone to like go along with the faith if they didn't have any inkling of what they wanted themselves? I mean, if that's what Kierkegaard is trying to say, he wants to make sure the person is not just blindly following. Is that correct? That may be the case. I will be honest, going in-depth on fear and trembling might be a little outside of our scope tonight. Um, but <laughs> notions, of, uh, notions of good faith and bad faith might be, uh, might be something interesting for someone to discuss, especially uh, when we get Father Todd on situational ethics, we could press him on that one. That's what I think. I'm going to pass the buck. Um, and, uh, okay... Uh, Question six. This is great and all, but why do we care? Kierkegaard, of all people, overlooked a major canon of significance of the news from across the seas. This canon has to do with the hearer of the news. Who is the hearer when all is said and done? Kierkegaard's error was that he continued to appraise the gospel from the scientific posture, which doesn't hear the news. So Kierkegaard, in in a sort of a fundamental way, is throwing his lot in with these other thinkers who don't take faith as fundamentally harmonious with reason. And that's kind of the downfall. Uh, that's kind of the error there. I'm going to read this next part. I'm going to ask that nobody read 63, because I, I like the, just the way that he phrases it in the essay. Um, so Percy says, For whom is the news not news? It is not news to a swallow. For a swallow is what it is, no more and no less. It is at home in the world and no castaway. It is not news to unfallen man, because he too is at home in the world and no castaway. It is not news to a fallen man who is a castaway, but believes himself to be at home in the world, for he does not recognize his own predicament. It is only news to a castaway who knows himself to be a castaway. So we talk about the draw of Kierkegaard for Percy. I think the draw is that he... Uh, he's sort of shocked out of his, his status of being a castaway, a sinful man who doesn't realize the sin, doesn't realize the castawayness. Uh, that's sort of uh, the beginning, if you will, of his, of his kind of gradation from I, I've got it all together to I have nothing together, but, but, look, at, but look at God in front of me. Um, okay. The message in the bottle is not enough. If the message conveys a news and not knowledge, there must be someone who delivers the news and who speaks with authority. 
The apostolic character of Christianity is unique among religions. No one else has ever left or ever will leave his island to say come to other islanders for reasons which have nothing to do with the dissemination of philosophical knowledge and nothing to do with his own needs. I'm going to pause there for a moment. So, um, basically, no one's ever going to leave and go to just like, spread a gospel of... I read that? Did, I, did I quote that right? My goodness. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, of his own needs, 148. Yeah, so what they're saying is basically, it seems like the apostolic nature of, of the faith, that you, 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 you take it with you, you become an apostle, it just happens to you, is sort of unique. It doesn't happen, it doesn't happen every day. Um, now, this, again, is, not, is an idea that's being presented. I don't necessarily know if I find this particular piece fully agreeable, in that you could, I'm sure, point to examples of other people who do the same thing. Uh, for instance, the Mormons, as well as some more obscure Gnostic sects that still exist today, will go out two by two. Uh, apparently, my dad tells me uh, that he hosted some Gnostic uh, apostles back in the day uh, at a Free Methodist parsonage. Or my, his dad did that, I'm sorry. But um, it is interesting to point out that the message itself is not necessarily enough, and it always implies an apostle. Uh, now, Percy can kind of get around this distinction rather easily, at least if you have kind of a knowledge of where he's coming from, or a, which is that uh, even writing, even writing ha implies a messenger. Uh, Father Anderson, would you do me a favor, and would you read the published date on this book? The published date? Yeah, on the right, on the left. Published September 1902. Yep. Now, that is an artifact that I found at a house one day um, over here on Hawthorne. And uh, Chesterton, I think, is a good example because a lot of us, uh, you know, have known him and read him. This is varied types. I haven't even read it. The only way I could justify buying it was so I could give it away to somebody else. What is it? Uh, this is Chesterton's varied types. It's a 1902, uh, first published 1902. I think this printing is actually 1906, but... Um, the point is, the point is that this is a book that implies a messenger. Nobody would care what was in this if it wasn't for this guy. Like that's that's the basic of it. If if Jesus was not who he was, if he didn't show up in the Gospels at all, they wouldn't. If someone just said, you know, someone came to die for you, okay, great, whatever. Uh, if that person themselves is a demonstrator. And the way that they are, their sobriety is demonstrative. That's that's much more helpful. I'm much more likely to believe that. Um. The communist is disseminating what he believes to be philosophical knowledge, and so is the Rockefeller scientist. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Holy Roller are bearing island news to make themselves and other islanders happy. What if a man receives the commission to bring news across the seas to the castaway? and does so in perfect sobriety and with good faith and perseverance to the point of martyrdom. And what if the news the news bearer bears is the very news the castaway had been waiting for, news of where he came from and who he is and what he must do? And what if the news bearer brought with him the means by which the castaway may do what he must do? Modern humans don't know that they're fallen or homeless and may need the bad news first. So again, I, I mentioned a book earlier called Lost in the Cosmos. If you want to read the bad news, it's all in this book. It's amazing. Uh, this will tell you how messed up you are. 
uh, exactly where you don't know you're going, and just how, how envious, how lustful, how everything you can be in your life. Um, and you can take those words to mean what they might be taken to typically mean, but he's talking about everything, like just the, the total screwed up nature of humanity. Um, so if, uh, kind of the ungospel to sort of prep you and sort of prick you to realize that something is wrong and that your modern scientific existence will not satisfy. Uh, Lost in the Cosmos is a great bet for that. Um, this is a little plug there. Um, and also, if you're going to read Percy, it's a much better introduction than trying to read The Message in the Bottle, which I will be honest with you has essays that I, including the one I'm discussing, still have a little bit of trouble understanding. Um, and that's my own uh, negatory on the uh, exact philosophical education, in part. But, Nathan. I had a question regarding this, but in 56 and 57, mm-hmm. regarding analytic sentences and synthetic sentences, mm-hmm. 56 says analytic sentences correspond to rationalism which justifies knowledge with our minds, mm-hmm. but synthetic sentences correspond to empiricism which justifies knowledge with our eyes. Mm-hmm. Now, in, with, with both of these, it seems, it seems first of all, to, to correspond with with a priori and a posteriori reasoning, am I correct? Is that essentially what's going on? So, so knowledge that is deduced solely within the realm of the mind, knowledge said to be prior or birth, and then empiricism, things that we deduce with the five senses. Mm-hmm. And both of those things, I mean, when you talk about the idea of, well, trying to answer everything with science, well, you can't do that because not everything that is truth isn't always you know, and we need to deduce through the five senses, but some things are only of the mind of, of higher truths of what Plato would call forms. But either way, both of those types of knowledge are still types of, of reasoning. Oh, sure. Yeah, but neither one of those necessitates faith or a leap of, of, of faith. So that, that division doesn't appear to guard any good. As a matter of fact, it only seems further calls them into question. Well, yeah. They're not necessarily trying to help Kierkegaard. I just honestly, I'm just making a point about about something we've seen before, um, because in his talk on transhumanism, Father Furlow rather eloquently brought up the rationalist and empiricist split in philosophy, where a rationalist, uh, like Descartes, says, "Well, I, I start with my mind, and what can I notice from that?" And someone like Hume will start with uh, the world around him and say, "Okay, what do I notice from that?" And it just was interesting to me that the analytic sentences were very rationalist things to say. They start with what you know in your mind, and the synthetic uh, were um, would seem, seem more more empirical things that you would verify, like like a scientist would. And um, it would be worth noting that when we talk about the sciences or philosophy here, we're talking about things that include both categories. So um, we're talking about knowledge as analytic and synthetic sentences together. Uh, the extreme being. I think the philosophy is entitled is called logical positivism, and it basically says that the only things are, that are true are things that are true by definition, or things that are uh, that are that you can that you can observe with your eyes. Um, like the only like, I, and I want to say everything else is not even like false. It's just hot air. Doesn't mean anything. Um, so that that's kind of the extreme of that viewpoint. Um, so we are now entering extended uh, Q and A. I'd like to point out that for purposes of tonight's bet, the Q&A, references, etc. are not considered part of this packet. Gil, would you give us the time, please? You're at, like, 18 minutes left. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and add five minutes to that for break, because I don't think you, were, you weren't timing during break, right?
Okay, I had five minutes to that for break, and I think I'm good on that, but that does give us a little more time if there are extended questions. For the record, Father Anderson's beer does not ride on you messing up, messing me up. I'm going to buy him a beer either way. Thank you. You're welcome. Chris. I just thought it would be fun to give everybody messages and, and give some of you a dollar. Lee. So... So I was right there in the conversation, even though I wasn't thinking that, that I'd have gone along with it. Yeah. But then it, it struck me later how much more comfortable we were ignoring Seven and, and going to the Castaway um, movie and thinking of the Castaway in terms of somebody who did actually preserve all of their memories and was moving, you know, that was where they wanted to go. Their home wasn't on the island. Yeah, but Seven says that he lost his memory in the shipwreck mm -hmm. and has no recollection. That's such an uncomfortable place to be, and um, isn't it where we are, at least without, without dogs. Yeah, it, it, without the news. it feels a little bit more like if you were a, if you were a closed adoption, almost. Like you, you, would know that, you would know that somebody loving adopted you, but you have no idea who gave you away. And you might have some consciousness of being a castaway, but not of what you were before that, or at least not fully understanding what you were before. Could you could you take number seven though and apply it to the longer quote which I believe you gave that related the uh, the knowledge that one has, or sorry, the disposition of the hearer of the knowledge, who simply comes to the knowledge that he is a castaway is similar to uh, someone who perhaps has never heard the gospel, but perhaps begins to come to a knowledge some point in the timeline of life that something is not quite right. I'm unhappy. I do things I would rather I not do. What is the source of this unhappiness? And then all of a sudden you begin to realize it's as if you, you're coming to the knowledge of it. Sorry, you're... you're, you're glimpsing into a previous knowledge that you once had, and you've lost your memory, and you're starting to glimpse that something's wrong. That's how I would, I, I would connect seven to the, to the larger discussion. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think that's well said. Uh, Anything else? Bueller? I'm sorry. I said Bueller. I was just making a joke. <laughs> So, uh, could you go into a little more detail about uh, about this last section here, the, uh, the why do we care? Um, yeah. Like, all of this stuff about differences between Kierkegaard and Thomas. If I'm a castaway, why do I care? What are the differences between Kierkegaard and Thomas? Oh, you don't. I was asking why we care. But I guess we are castaways, so that's right. an excellent question. Well, I think if we have reached an awareness that we are castaways... Um, that it, sorry, I need to <laughs> put that away. Um, I think if, if we're, uh, if we're castaways that we would care about this sort of thing, uh, more because of the implications. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think if you're one who happens to be interested in philosophical knowledge, such as the type of knowledge that is arguably contained in this essay, I would argue this essay is news we can use. Um, but, um, I think... That, uh, sorry, one second. Um, 
If you've been to Vespers, you've seen me do that like multiple times. Whenever I mess anything up, it's what I do. Um, and uh, I think what we care about at that point is um, is how can we wake up somebody else? And that's why I was asking why do we care? Because if we're looking at practical applications, I think what we need to know is how do I help someone else become aware of that predicament? Not so that I don't feel alone, but because it's better to know than to not know. Uh, one of the early people, uh, utilitarians, I believe it was Mill, John Stuart Mill, said uh, it was better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. And I think that's a, that honestly I think is, is more of a knowledge thing than a news thing, but it gets us somewhere that we want to go, which is you want the others to, to wake up and to know to know that they're castaways. You don't want to, people just be blissfully unaware. Um, why would you want that existence for yourself? You wouldn't want it for anybody else. And so the implications are, okay, how do we, how do we make that happen? Is it the case, this, it's just, this is just occurring to me, um, I've read a little bit of, of Percy, since he's sort of um, uh, marinated in ennui or existential um, <laughs> And all of his characters, like Big Spoling and Ruby Goer, or uh, Tom Moore, uh, yeah, exactly. Tom Moore in uh, Love in the Ruins are uh, are these extremely like existentially angsty people that mm-hmm. are uh, that are maybe at some point becoming aware of the bad news and open to the good news. Um, is he making a case for why he writes it that this way? Like why he writes stories like this? Or who do you think? I would. Well, that's an excellent question. I don't actually know if that's necessarily the case that he's making. Um, I think he's maybe just making the case he makes in the novels in a more philosophically explicit way. Okay. That he's sort of saying in a more explicit way, this is this is why this this is this is why it matters to be a castaway. This is why these distinctions ultimately matter more. This is why these categories of knowledge make more sense. And what he's saying is. It's not only that they made more sense back when we were living in the time of Thomas Aquinas. I think what Percy is saying goes a step further. He's saying, no, this makes more sense now. It makes more sense now to believe that there are some truths we grasp by reason, others that we only grasp by faith, but that faith is not against reason than it does to believe that faith is simply an absurdity that we get from across the seas. And I will be honest with you guys. I am Percy is my introduction to a lot to has been my introduction to a lot of philosophy so there's a good chance that other thinkers are being bastardized a tad here and i don't mean to say that like flippantly it's just i need to be honest about this stuff um as you all know i am one of those people um somebody back there uh yeah i had something so um that's the way it comes to the realization that all of the good things in his or her life, you know, the job and the family and the good food and so on, are inadequate, that there's something missing. I don't know, maybe a little bit like Chesterton's youthful conviction that he was living in a ruined garden. Before he realized that Christianity was, was saying something quite similar, 
Um, so, so once you once you realize that you've got that statement, what is an alienation from the good, the, the goods that are offered to you in your lived context, that they're that they're not enough, then I think the existentialist is authentic by looking at that alienation as opposed to somebody who's inauthentic, mm-hmm. who, you know, eats more mangoes and, 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 and does more dancing around the fire or something in order to, uh, to, to blind themselves or distract themselves from, from that. So the existentialist in this metaphor is the one who has authenticity by looking, being what really is, including this alienation, looking at it and, and keeping it in view and not and not cringing and looking away and becoming inauthentic. Does that does that sound right? Sounds right to me. Kathleen? I, I, yeah, I think that that's a really good insight. From your uh, description, too, of, of Walker Percy and his early life and his tuberculosis treatment, and then um, your description of how Kierkegaard may have poked him <laughs> um, to realize these exactly these things, um, the alienation, the um, and awakened him to the fact that experience matters in living life in terms of you can't just live it all in your head and you know with mathematical like propositions flying back and forth you have to be in contact and understanding of your experience and um, one thing that strikes me as a component of news you can use that is the revelation that comes to us through the apostle is is that um, it corresponds to use a word that you know we use in the CL group, but it's uh, we we understand that, that okay here I have my need and I understand that I have a need mm-hmm. now I'm not just thinking rationally about it I understand that essentially I have a need and now I can understand the news coming the revelation of, of the presence that's coming to me to save me I can I get it once I can see what my need is. Well, we we talked a little about um, we talked we talked a little about Chesterton tonight and a little bit about Percy and of course I invited some CL people here so it's no surprise that uh, Jasani and CL would come up. Uh, I think that uh, that Percy's uh, Percy's project is to needle modern man and be like something's wrong. Don't you want to know what it is? Something is wrong with you. Like don't, you want to know? You want to? And Chesterton is that guy who has lived through the hell to get to the place where he just is essentially a mystic. Like, he's living in front of every reality with a total abandonment to that providence that's presented to him. I mean, I'm sure, it, I don't know if he's like, this is a weird way to say this, but I don't know if I would consider him like a saint. Like, you know, you wouldn't necessarily say like a saint because that's not been defined. It's not really been talked about too much. But um, that... That he still is living this this picture that I think a lot of us would want of abandonment, and what a movement like CL I think is doing is is trying to provide a sort of a method. Once you've realized your alienation, once you've realized your need that nothing satisfies, uh, how do you get from point A to point B? And 
obviously there are lots of other paths like um some one person here uh eric can i use your, can, I, can i use you as an example sure uh our friend eric i think found some of that path um he's not a benedictine but i think he found some of that path in the benedictine spirituality when he went to visit their monastery back when he was still a protestant minister um and just kind of to see and that that i think is, is part of what the church is for is point a to point b uh to get from feeling merely homeless in the world to feeling like chesterton says uh at once kind of homeless and also at home in the world. Like, how do we, how do we get there? CJ. It, the, the metaphor of the, of the castaway is, is really striking to me, too, because you can kind of have that idea that, I mean, it seems like any movie would be able to base itself off of this starting premise of someone who has a completely fine life, and then all of a sudden they come to this realization that they aren't from there. Like, it, it, it's just interesting that he uses a, what seems to me to be a rather universal um, starting point, which is that if I find out that I am not from here, even though here is absolutely fine, and things are, I, I, I've got a wife and family and kids and a, and a good job and a nice house, I'm still going to want to know that the, hu- the human mind has to, it doesn't want to live with an obscurity, with something that's left in the shadows. It, it has this impetus to explore that which, especially where it came from. So the, the Truman Show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think, I think the danger, though, we say the image of the castaway is that they're not, we're not from here. And that's not true. Because we look at scripture, this is where God put us. We have just been separated. We look at the idea of original sin and everything pertaining to that. This is actually our home. This is the home that God created for us, if we believe the book of Genesis and, and, and our, our creation story. So it's a different way of looking at it, and, and I would caution anyone, not, not just people in this room, but anyone to, to look at um, to physicalize the earth is, well, I'm not from here. This is not my home. Because the, the inherent um, tendency is then we don't have to take care of it. It's not ours. I, it's not, not our response. Not, this is not what I was destined for. This is not where I belong. So we treat it like we treat a hotel. <laughs> I mean, and the, who, who here is not guilty of, of we treat our hotel the way we never treat our home. Um, so we are, the castaway, it's, it's a modified castaway, I think. It, it's that, yes, we've been, it's like being locked in your room when your parents say, go to your room and close the door, and you're not allowed to commune with the rest of the family, you know? And I think it's, it's being locked in there for so long that you, you've forgotten what the rest of your family sounds like, looks like, feels like. And so we're, we, we are where God placed us, but that sense of not belonging, that sense of, of being cut off from part of ourselves, I think comes from that separation of, 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 of us from the divine. And I think it's a powerful met- metaphor to look at, uh, you know, I think you make, it makes a good point, number seven, like the gentleman earlier said, and number 63. Uh, there's only news to the castaway who knows himself to be castaway. 
Tim, and I wrote, Tim says the news of someone who doesn't recognize their status as a castaway is almost pointless. And then that leads directly into number 71. Um, we don't know that we're fallen or homeless. We may need the bad news first. So recognizing, yeah, it is, it's a, it's a different form of castaway. It's a different form of, of bad news or fallen. And then um, being able to reconcile ourselves to the divine through the gospel, I think it's it's incredibly powerful. It's, just, it's good stuff. Yeah, I think I think in Persis metaphor, uh, I seem to recall a story about a garden somewhere in our tradition. I think that's the one that we're we're looking for. Talk about our our original desert island, um, and. Yeah, I think it's. I think it is important. I like the. I like the. It's why I like. I like the phrase Pilgrim Church. I remember uh, seeing. A, I don't even know what he is. I think he claimed to be Catholic, but he's like kind of Protestant. I don't know. Um, there's a guy named Brennan Manning who wrote this thing about like pioneer God versus settler God, and I. I kind of felt like that was the wrong framing. I. I felt like Pilgrim Church made sense, and lo and behold, that's the one that. A lot of. People, you know, you might find some some people using that phrase, you know, in the Catholic Church, time to time, just a little bit. Um, uh, any other questions, comments, concerns? Have I proven myself a heretic? I don't know. Okay, cool. John, I wanted to know whether or not you had a uh, a specific insight into maybe where Kierkegaard and Thomas really do it perhaps begin or end, and what do you think could bring them closer together? What's your thoughts on that? Uh, I would guess, and this is somebody, I am, I like I said, I've not, I'm not a super well-read in philosophy. Um, I would guess that if you had to take a starting point, you would probably, on bringing them together, and even maybe learning what sets them apart from the starting point, uh, themselves, obviously, um, the context. I think Kierkegaard is uh, shrouded in a lot of darkness. He's not necessarily, uh, he's not necessarily a lot of ambiguity. Maybe a lot of ambiguity. Whereas Aquinas is sort of surrounded by a little bit more light. Um, you don't hear about the dark night of the soul uh, in conjunction with Aquinas of all people. You hear about reason and the five proofs of God or the five ways. Um, and I think if you want to talk about reconciliation, probably the most serious work, I would guess, was probably done by Thomistic philosophers after existentialism became a thing. Um, and if I had to, I'm going to try and drop a couple names. And honestly, if you're talking to somebody, you want to talk to someone who's actually well-read, Matthew, uh, uh, the seminarian here this summer might have a better notion <laughs> on, who to, on who to read for this. But okay, never mind. Apparently he won't. Um, but I want to say Gabriel Marcel and uh, oh, uh, Jacques Maritain uh, and Father Charlie. Well, probably the classic Gnostic formulation would be Carl Rahner, who reconciles. He makes an attempt to reconcile Heidegger with the clients. So that's certainly existentialist. And, you know, Marcel's notion is that you need to, uh, again, as I was saying before, you need to uh, look meaning in the face and not be inauthentic or, or to be distracted or 
and then to act on the basis of, of your encounter with being. Well, Marcel would say, for a Christian, being is Jesus Christ. And so for a Christian existentialist, living authentically means to, uh, to, 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 to have this encounter with Jesus Christ and to act out of that encounter. So I think that that is the place where existentialism and Christianity come closest to being reconciled in, in that idea of ourselves. Or, you know, Rahner's idea that uh, you start to do theology with the transcendental existential. The human person being that one who exists, who, as part of their nature, is oriented toward the transcendent, which is similar, a bit similar, I suppose, to what Marcel was saying. So if that's your, if that's your fundamental existential insight, this orientation toward being and toward the transcendent, then what data you're able to acquire through revelation about, or philosophy even, about who Jesus Christ is, is listed because Jesus Christ is being for you. And whatever you can know about being within, with authenticity and integrity is admissible. Thank you, Father. Stephanie? Well, I just wanted to agree with you. I think um, focusing on existential philosophers that believe in the transcendence is more important than starting with Heidegger or <laughs> Sartre or someone that's really much darker. Kierkegaard would definitely be a good start as well. To read more about him. Who's the other guy? Do you remember the guy? Is it Eddie and Gilson who wrote The Spirit of Medieval Philosophy? I haven't read the book, but I I feel like he was one of the guys who was... Yeah. I feel like he was one of the guys who also... Yeah, that's a whole other bag. So don't start with that. Yeah, I'm not going to try and reconcile Christianity to nihilism. I don't think that's going to happen. Um... I'm beat. I don't know about you guys. Well done, Daniel. According to Mike's clock, you still have 34 seconds. Thank you, Dan, for coming to speak with us tonight. And I think we'll have to find a place for you on the calendar for next year again. Well, thank you all for coming. Uh, we've gone through a lot of the snacks, but there's a little bit left. So please help yourself and uh, something to drink. And you're welcome to... Uh, it's always uh, much appreciated. So thank you all for coming. Let's end with a prayer. Please stand. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.